everybody, welcome into To The Point. You're all doing well on this Monday. Coming off a very exciting weekend in the sports world. A lot to dive into today. Stanley Cup Final, Game 1. Full recap coming up here on the show. NBA Final, Game 2. Last night in Denver, interesting game. Some thoughts on that. We got some head coaching news and notes from around the NBA and the NHL. French Open's been interesting. Been watching a lot of tennis from over the weekend. Going to talk Memorial Cup. Where does where does Patrick Waugh go from here after winning his second Memorial Cup last night? And a whole lot more. So stay tuned, buckle up, get cozy in Vegas. Game one of the Stanley Cup final, Florida Panthers, Vegas Golden Knights. I thought going into this series, it would be very close. The two teams are eerily similar. They play a very structured and a very aggressive style, get you on the forecheck type hockey game. They're not fancy. They're not going to score highlight real goals, and they'll work their opponents. And I thought Saturday night we saw one team play the style that they've been playing that led them to victories, and I think we saw the Florida Panthers deviate from that a little bit and not really have it, quite frankly. Through 40 minutes, the game was very close. I don't think in the first or second period, if you tell me Vegas or Florida was the better team, I'll take your word for it. It was very close. Shots were close, up and down. What I will say is I believe Vegas had better scoring opportunities. Sergey Bobrovsky, if we're just talking scoring chances, you, shots are one thing that you can look at that stat. It, it's worth some, something, not everything. But if you're looking at the totality of what you're doing, scoring opportunities in the crease, near the blue paint, Vegas had more. Vegas was getting to these areas. They were creating opportunities for the team. And that style, while you could say it was even through 40 minutes, because it was two to two, it translated into future success and it translated into future scoring chances into the third period. And in particular, if you watch the third period, Saturday night, you saw a team that was focused and had better hockey IQ on how we're going to win this game. Vegas knows two things going into this series. We don't have a player that's better than the best player of Florida. Matthew Kachuk is better than any player on the Vegas Golden Knights. That's not an opinion. It's a fact. And they also know their goaltender is better than ours. So if you know that going in, that does not mean you're going to lose the series. How do we prepare for that? How do we approach the series knowing these facts? We need to go out there and work harder than our opponent and find different ways to score goals if we know their goaltender is better than ours. Looking at the game, two goals by the Vegas Golden Knights were off screens. Two goals where Sergei Bobrovsky did not see the puck until the puck went by him. The game-winning goal to make it 3-2, 
a seeing eye shot in the third period. It felt like the game was going to be another overtime because these two teams both love their overtime games, but you get a screen in front and you make a great play on it. Bobrovsky doesn't see it. You get a screen, you find a way to score a goal. The fourth goal of the game that was controversial. Kachuk's looking to do their, they love this flip pass they put into the neutral zone. Mark Stone sees it, knocks it down, and he rips it under the bar. You could argue it was high sticking. I don't think it was. I'm okay with I'm okay with the goal being good. I'm okay with it being a good goal. Don't need the review. Don't need any of that stupid bullshit. But two simple plays by being smarter and by getting to the dirty areas. Florida didn't do it. Florida didn't do it enough on Aiden Hill. He saw all the shots he was facing. The one quick shot he got was Duclair off the faceoff to end the second period. Guess what? It ended up in the back of the net because it went off a shin pad. It was a dirty goal. But in, in the totality of the game, Vegas was willing to get to these areas while Florida stayed to the outside. Florida accepted the fact that we're a good four-checking team. Maybe Vegas is better. That can't be an acceptance because Florida won't win the series if they aren't four-checking if they aren't working harder than Vegas. Because yes, Kachuk is better. And yes, Bobrovsky is better than Aiden Hill. But in my humble opinion, work ethic and hockey IQ will win in the end. Florida beat Toronto because they outwork them. Because they have more heart. Because they have better hockey IQ because they're willing to sacrifice. While the other team on the other side of the ice, we know they're not. Carolina, a team that's very simplistic, a team that loves to work. We attack you. We swarm you like bees and Tommy boy. They, they just, they got to those areas. They capitalized on opportunities. And when they had to score a goal in a big moment, they did. Vegas saw the third period and said, we think we can win this game because we can attack this period and be better than Florida because they did all those things. But something else, I thought Florida... Their legs kind of, they lost it. They hadn't played a hockey game in 10 days. They looked tired in the third period. They looked like a team that hadn't been skating all that much, that hadn't been playing in, in game style, and it cost them. It, it, def it definitely cost them because they didn't have it. They needed to, they needed, they were hoping for a win and not going for the win. Something else from Florida. I thought the way they approached the game defensively, and I'm talking about defensemen, the bad pinching and the spacing that they allowed the Vegas Golden Knights to have was completely absurd. What I mean by spacing is they had four guys on one side of the ice, then you have a man alone on the other side. Odd man rush after odd man rush. Defensemen, know your position. Know what you're doing. Stay on your side of the ice. This is basic stuff. This is Adam hockey. You're learning the fundamentals of being a defenseman. I remember my dad talking to my sister. Stay over on your side. Don't come over. Know your responsibility. This was not just once or twice. This was through 40 minutes. I counted six times that the spacing in the game, Vegas could have done whatever the fuck they wanted with the puck. They had the whole side of the ice going on Bobrovsky, get a clean look. 
What's happening here? 1.0 is Aaron Eckblad. Then the next shift, it was Mark Stahl. And then Montour screwed it up. And the man who was the, the, the hero for Florida in game one was Gustav Forsling. Played his tail off. Played a hell of a game because he had to recover so many times for his shitty defenseman. But if you're going to give up that much open ice, if you're going to give that much space to your opponent, you're done. I get being aggressive. I like the fact that Florida is aggressive. Their D are acclimating. They're jumping into the play. They're not afraid to take a chance. I like giving freedom to my defensemen because I think if you put them all into a box, as is any human being, if you tell somebody you can only be this, then you'll never know what you truly can be because you got put in a box. You're going to be, you know what, you're going to be the stupid and you're going to be the nerd in school for your whole life. And when you're done from doing that in school, you can't go into the normal world and maybe be something else. Maybe be more social, maybe be more popular. No, you're going to be the nerd. You're going to have very few friends. This is the only thing that's going to happen to you. That's a negative way to look at life. So I like that Paul Maurice gives Florida the opportunity, gives his defensemen the opportunity to see what they can do. Now, don't give that to Mark Stahl because of his age, other factors. But it's one thing to pinch. It's one thing, because here's, here's what happened Saturday night. You'd have one defenseman on his, on their own. So the, uh, Vegas coming up the ice. Puck is stopped at the Florida blue line. So you're not in a dangerous opportunity yet. You're, not, you're, in, a, you're in a safe area. They need to get the puck over the blue line. They need to get into a scoring chance. You understand the game. But the puck is there, and it's on the right side. So the left defenseman decides to come all the way over to get into the circle, to come into the pile. No. No, this is Hockey 101. The center goes first, and you have the left winger, meaning the right winger and the right shot D, sorry, the left shot D and the left winger are on the opposite side. So they can cover up, and if the other team wins the battle, guess who's over there? These two guys to eliminate a mistake. It's not four guys that go into a corner, and then you have one guy who's out that's you know basically hanging there. That's that's no support. That's that's poor puck pressure. And if you're doing that, you better damn come out with the puck. This happened all the time. Mark Stone in the first six minutes had a clean look on Bobrovsky. Hell of a save. But you know what? That look that Bobrovsky stopped, Mark Stone scored on later in the game. Maybe that first look helped him know where to shoot the second time because he didn't miss. Florida played a pretty poor game, in my opinion. Poor spacing. They didn't work as hard as Vegas. They didn't, their power play was abysmal. No scoring chances, way too fancy, not getting pucks to the front of the net. They didn't value the puck. One of the, you can look at power plays now in the modern age and there's lots to dislike about them. One thing that drives me up the wall in power plays 
is obviously the back pass 85 times, which every team does. I hate it. But the other one to me is when a defenseman has the puck and you throw it to the center or the the bumper position on the power play, if, you, if you're following me, you throw it to the bumper guy in the middle of this. So it's, it's as if in the NBA, you're throwing it to your big man to post up. Guess what that person has to do? He has to catch the pass, then turn around. You know who's in front of him? A defenseman. You know what defenseman can do? Knock the puck off his stick, clear it out of the zone. It happened so many times. It's a stupid play. It never works. Because you're throwing it into the middle of the box. You're throwing it into the swarm of bees. You're not allowing creativity for passing, for spacing to happen. It's a stupid way to play. It's a stupid power play model. It can make Vegas's penalty kill look fantastic, or Vegas' penalty kill can look fantastic because your power play is a piece of shit. I'll take the latter. It was a 5-2 game, and it was tied in the third period. That's what, that's what Florida can take from the game. We were in this game, and we played like crap. True. True. You did. You had no business being in that game. No business being that close. But it was. So you take that with a grain of salt. You pack it away. And you hope for better in game two. But also for, for Florida, use your back end. Use Brandon Montour. Use Aaron Ekblad. Get some shots. Get some bodies to the front of the net. I mean, come on. Can Vegas improve? I think they can. I did think they were so fantastic on the forecheck. Their opportunities, sublime. I don't expect Florida to be that poor tonight. I think Paul Maurice will make adjustments and this team. What is so impressive about Vegas is the way they break pucks out of their own zone, in my opinion. It is truly fantastic the way they, they play. Speed on the wings. You have that guy in the middle of the ice to help you if you need it. And the puck's out of the zone before you. They break the puck out like you learn it in, you know, peewee hockey. And it works. And what it leads to is opposing scoring, you know, scoring chances down the ice. So I talked about Florida pushing back aggression. But it's not really pushing back. It's pushing back stupidity. Stay where you are. If you're a defenseman, pinch. Pinch, but pinch on your side. So the other defenseman, you have, you have support back there. I have no problem with, with pinching. It's more about spacing. I think for Florida, I talked about this in the first round against Boston. How are they going to win? I thought they'd be aggressive on the forecheck and aggressive at stopping breakouts. Defensemen jump in. Get into the half wall, stop the puck from breaking out there. I look at it similar here. It's Vegas's superpower. It's what they do the best in their game. So don't allow them to do it. Stop them from getting traction. Stop them from getting that momentum, which leads to scoring chances down the ice. 
because they they have so many guys like Mark Stone, Bill Carlson. I would throw Marsha So into the mix that are just really smart hockey players. Really smart guys that just get the job done. It's not fancy. They're not going to win any awards. But they get the job done and they do it effectively. I mean, Mark Stone on breakouts, Mark Stone in the defensive end, he's got it. He knows what to do. He knows how to help. And he very well, if they, if they, get, if they win the series, he could win the Smythe Trophy as the captain. But Vegas is, is a, as a whole, their defensive team, it, as a defensive unit, they're fantastic. I love their defense because it's, it's they're big. Everybody's big on the Vegas Gold Knights. Hag, big man. Petrangelo, Theodore, Martinez, White Cloud, McNabb, nasty piece of business. There's no small guy. There's no Sammy Gerrard on this team that you have to protect, that you have to shield, that you need to hope isn't a problem. No. Do they have defensemen that are better than others? Yeah, of course. Like, I think Nick Hag is their third best defenseman. Number 14. Watch him tonight. Watch Nick Hag. I think Petrangelo goes Theodore, and I put Nick Hag three. Because he is, he's, he's an eraser. He's got good speed for his size. He's physical, and he makes things happen. I have to give love to this player. I thought he was fantastic in game one. He's had a really good playoff. Jack Eichel. Jack Eichel had one assist. And if you're looking at the box score, you wouldn't even notice that he had a, you know, a great game. I mean, just looking at points, uh, one assist, way to go. It wasn't about the one assist, and it's not about the box score. Jack Eichel pl is playing... I'm like, I, I've never seen him play this way. He is not afraid to mix it up. He's finishing his checks. He's taking checks on the opposite team. He's doing it with a smile. He's getting to the front of the net. He's creating scoring opportunities. And what's something that you don't think about He's playing on a line with Ivan Barbashev. Why is that interesting? It's interesting to me because Ivan Barbashev would easily be one of the most hated players on the Vegas Golden Knights. He hits harder than any player on the team. He might be regarded as a greasy guy. A guy you'd love on your team, hate when you play against him. I love him. But when you have a player that's on the ice with you like that, you know what's coming. Bullshit. Extracurricular activities, pushing, shoving, right? Even Marcheseau, not exactly a fan favorite, not exactly a favorite of anybody else on the ice because he likes to he likes to chat. He's a cocky guy. Good for him. He backs it up. He's a winner. But you are the, the star on a line with a heavy checker and a 
Good goal scorer, but a cocky guy that's French and likes to run his mouth. That means you're the target. Because they're not going to go after the hard checker. They might punch Marchiso in the face, but they're going to go after you because they think they can break you. That's how it works. And I thought Jack Eichel took the game in perfectly. He punched back. He created scoring opportunities. And that Barbashev, Marchiso, Eichel line is fantastic for Vegas. They have many more good shifts than bad shifts. That's for sure. So Jack Eichel, the Buffalo saga, the neck surgery, yada, yada, yada. That all happened. But to me, he's had a metamorphosis in Vegas to being the kind of player you need to win. To being the kind of guy that helps you get over the hump. He may not be a superstar, but he's a star player. And I think he fits the mold of this team. He fits the way they want to play hockey. So he can be a, a punching bag sometimes. He can be a guy that's looked down upon. Second overall pick. Disappointing career in Buffalo. Traded to Vegas. Well, he's pretty, playing pretty damn well right now. And he's playing really confident. And his team's winning. So Jack Eichel's getting the last laugh right now. So good on him. Now in saying... All of that. I I think Florida is going to win tonight. I think it's going to be a tied series going back to Florida. Going back to Sunrise. I thought Aiden Hill played really well in game one. Made that incredible save on Nick Cousins. Was solid in between the pipes. But as I mentioned, he didn't have a lot of high-quality scoring opportunities against him. I think the adjustment Florida make will be enough to tie the series. I think their legs will be better after playing quickly. After having 10 days off, I didn't think they were in it. I think they'll be better tonight. For Florida, I'm fine with the extra stuff after the whistles. You do what you got to do, but don't be stupid. The Cousins penalty on Aiden Hill, whacking the goaltender, that was just stupidity. It's not a smart play. It's not a winning play. It's going to get you nowhere, so stop doing it. The They get a goal from Eric Stahl shorthanded. I don't think that's going to happen again. But I think Kachuk, Bennett, these players will be more focused on scoring goals and getting on the forecheck and being harder to play than focusing on, you know, shoving people, getting into skirmishes. Focus on winning the game. And I think they will be more involved with that tonight. As I mentioned, these teams are so similar. So similar. And... I think the coaches are similar in their demeanor. Bruce Cassidy and Paul Maurice are both pretty forthright with the media. 
They both don't hide their emotions on the bench. For the most part, I thought officiating was pretty good in game one. thought some of the reviews were lengthy, but they always are. I can't fix stupidity there. But I just believe Florida will have a little bit more tonight. They'll have a little more juice, a little more jump. And I also think they, they'll be aware. Going down 0-2 to Vegas, it's a different beast because this team can lock you up. This team can play as well defensively as any team in the National Hockey League. And I wouldn't want to be down multiple games to this team. Because Vegas can beat you 2-1 to one if you want. They'll play that game with you. And Florida has as well. But you need, Florida is more dependent in that game on Bobrovsky being superhuman. On Bobrovsky being the best goaltender in the world. And I don't know if he, if, you know, if he can continue to do that. But expect it to be a fun one tonight. Because it's already, these teams already don't like each other after one game. Which is fantastic. But I will say, Sasha Barkov, he kind of walked through that Carolina series. He needs to be better, in my opinion. He needs to do more. He needs to be, like I said, do Claire and Verhege drive that line, not Barkov. He needs to be more effective. How about be as good as Chandler Stevenson is for the Vegas Golden Knights? The kid's a stud. Studded up with that pass he made the other night, tape to tape to Marshall. So, whoo! Just match up with the opposing line and win it. How about that? You're regarded as one of the best centers in the National Hockey League. Play like it. I find this guy just walks and he has this perception of being this elite, elite player. And he is very good. But he ain't that good. He ain't that good. Let me let me promise you that. But we'll see what happens. Game two tonight in Las Vegas, Nevada. Some head coaching news in the NHL. Darren Dreger reported this weekend from the Memorial Cup that Mike Babcock will be returning to the National Hockey League. He will be the next head coach of the Columbus Blue Jackets. It's, however, it's not been formally announced yet because Mike is employed by the Toronto Maple Leafs until June 30th. And if they were to hire him now, then it, they'd have to pay out his last, last month. Columbus does not want to do that. So they will allow Mike to kind of sit there and waiting, but he is their next head coach. Interesting. Mike Babcock is back in the NHL. And you can have an opinion of him. Mike Commodore hates him. I don't think many Leafs star players truly like Mike. But he's a Stanley Cup winner. He's won two Olympic gold medals. And at the end of the day, if you win, people will employ you. 
I'm fascinated to see what it would be like between Patrick Laine and Mike Babcock. I don't know how that relationship will go. <laughs> or Johnny Goodrow, for that matter. Although Goodrow did play well under Daryl Sutter. But Columbus is an interesting team for him to walk into because although they're no good, they're kind of set. Lyonnais locked up long-term. Goodrow's locked up long-term. Wierenski's locked up long-term. They don't have a lot of cap room for a team that isn't very good. He walks in. He's got to look at this group. And, you know, Torts coached this team. And Torts led the team to their first series win in franchise history. John Davidson's the president of hockey up there. Yarmol Kekalainen, GM. These two guys are about winning. And I think they're bringing in Mike Babcock not to be an asshole coach for these guys as they try to improve. I truly believe Columbus, whether it's on solid ground or you know, they're out in outer space, they believe that they can win rather quickly. They saw the Johnny Goodrow signing as a sign that they're ready to win. They're getting a high draft pick in this draft. Maybe he can make the team. If we get better goaltending, we can win. We got a, a Russian who is a goal scorer that, that they uh, Shinnikov they saw last year. So they have young pieces coming in. But I find it fascinating that Mike Babcock, he, he said actually in one of his interviews, he didn't want to coach a high-profile team anymore. Well, you get your wish. You're in Columbus. Ohio State. Memorial Golf Tournament, um, Cleveland Browns, even the Cincinnati Bengals are more popular. That's a different state. They're more popular than the Columbus Blue Jackets will ever be in Ohio. But I'm, I'm, I love the, the fit to see what he'll be like with these players. Because it's, it's, it's an interesting one, that's for sure. But Mike Babcock goes to Columbus. Also, Ottawa Senators. Gary Bettman talked to Ron, uh, Ron McLean Saturday night. Said the sale will take place in a few weeks. They're still mulling over options. And... This is interesting because obviously Kyle Dubas went to Pittsburgh, didn't want to wait, and also the money was there for the Pittsburgh job. So to me, it looks like DJ Smith and Pierre Dorian will be running the ship for the Ottawa Senators next season. But here's here's my this is just a theory. I don't have anything to back this up. This is just my brain thinking this over. Why is this taking so long? Why is there's three different ownership groups that want the Ottawa Senators? That's great that they're willing to pay up. That's awesome for the NHL. Why is it taking so long? To me, I think the NHL is meeting with these respective groups and they're figuring out who really wants the Ottawa Senators. Do you want to live in Ottawa? Do you want to be a part of that community? Do you want to be in Canada? So they want to figure that out. But the more important part of the conversation, I think they're talking to these ownership groups saying, you know, uh, let's just take the Astolopoulos guy. He's a Greek billionaire. You know, sir, how would uh, 
I know you really want the Ottawa Senators, Canadian hockey market, yada, yada, yada. How would you like a team in Houston? And he'd be like, whoa, what do you mean? There's no team. Well, I'm just saying, you know, a couple years down the road or maybe two years from now, let's say there's a hockey team in Houston. Would you be interested in owning a team in Houston, Texas? Would you be interested in having a new market and trying to build a success and see if you can do what Vegas and Seattle have done and trying to prop up the ego, but also gauging interest in a new hockey market? And why, you're probably wondering. What if the Arizona Coyotes have to move? What if the Arizona Coyotes can't get a rink built? Their owners suck. They're not going to keep them. The NHL needs to move them. You need an owner who's willing to pay a relocation fee to get the team, it's not an expansion, but to relocate to Houston. You rank all that stuff, and you become the owners of the Houston whatevers. Houston blank, formerly Arizona Coyotes. I think it's nice to have somebody in the on-deck circle. Have somebody sitting there so when you need them, when you can't play at the Mullet Arena, the university barn, when you're finally kicked out of there and you can't, can't build a rink in Tempe and you can't build a rink in Arizona and you can't, can't build a rink in Phoenix, you say, you know what? <sighs> Gary Bettman can say, oh, I hate leaving Arizona because I never wanted to admit failure. But you know, Houston, it's not in Canada when it's a market I want to try before I hang up my Reeboks check. Maybe I can get them to go own the Houston blanks. So I think the Ottawa Senators sale has something to do with the Ottawa Senators and finding out who really wants to buy the team, put up the money, this, that, the other. But I also think there's a discussion on if you're interested in buying the Ottawa Senators, would you be interested in buying the Arizona Coyotes? But not Arizona in Arizona. Are you interested in relocating Arizona to Houston? Or to Salt Lake, Houston? Or those two sites? Maybe that's not what's going on. But I think it would be nice to have that in place. Because when Arizona goes belly up and you can't put the team anywhere, you know what you need? A lifeline. And that is what these owners would do for the National Hockey League. Because the Arizona Coyotes are a joke. They're a punchline. They're, they're, just, they're a loser franchise. It makes the league look weak. But Gary Bettman's in the sell business. Gary Bettman's in the PR business. He's a lawyer. Arizona wasn't a failure because they were so popular. I could get somebody to buy them in a day's notice. I got this guy who wanted to buy the Ottawa Senators. He wanted to live in Canada. But you know what? He loves the NHL so much, and we got such an interest in this sport. I got him to accept moving to Houston, Texas. You can frame it any way you want. This deal could be done for two years until they're eventually moved, or 2024 next summer. But it, it's less about that, and it's more about, hey, what can you do for me here?
Where am I going? Could be deliberations. Do you like Salt Lake more or do you like Houston? I know my answer. I don't want to own a team in Salt Lake City, Utah. Because number one, I don't want to convert to Mormon. I don't want to go to church six, seven days a week. And I don't like the darkness at 4.30 in the afternoon seemingly year-round. That's what I hear. Probably not a fact, but I'll take it as one. Take it as one here. Salt Lake City, Mormons and dark darkness. Like Green Bay, minus the Mormons. Nothing wrong with Mormons, by the way, but I'm just, you know, I don't need more religious crap in my life. So how about Houston? Okay, probably some devout Catholics down. That's fine. But there's also a good entertainment capital of the world. The Cowboys are not far. You got the Houston Texans playing. You got nightlife. James Harden might return to the Houston Rockets. You got a thing going there. You got sports teams out the yin-yang. Could you put the team in the Toyota Center with the Houston Rockets? Boy, that'd be a seamless transition. Talk to Tillman Fertitta, owner of the Houston Rockets. Say, you know what? Can we get another team in this building? How about we make Houston what LA is? How about we make Houston what lesser what Toronto is? How about we do that? Basketball, hockey, same roof. Downtown Houston, Toyota Center. Walk down the street, you got a peel joint not far away. Whoa, selling tickets out the yin yang. So it's less about the Ottawa Senators to me, and it's more about putting a person in position to buy and relocate the Arizona Coyotes. And I think it'll be in Houston because nobody wants to live in Salt Lake. People in Salt Lake want to get the hell out of Salt Lake. No offense, Salt Lake City, Utah. Actually, take offense. What do I care? If you got Mormons and darkness and that's your pitch, I'm not coming ever. In jazz music. That's all you got? Jazz, Mormons, darkness. That sounds horrible. And the NBA All-Star Game was there this year, and they were closing bars down at 11 p.m. So the game's over, and you can't go have a drink after? Well, that's a good selling point. Boy, people can't wait to line up there. And don't book any games on Sundays. <laughs> um, I joke. Somewhat. Ottawa deal, Houston, it's connected. To me, there's a connection there because you have three owners that want a team. If you have owners that want to own a hockey team so bad, I don't think it really matters where the team is. Because guess what? You're buying the Ottawa Senators. That means two things. You're buying a Canadian market, which can be good, but it's also going to be a bad thing. Because if you buy the Ottawa Senators, guess what you need? A new rink. Guess what you're going to have to do? Pay for it. You have to pay for a new rink. You're going to need to build a new arena downtown, which is a multi-billion dollar project. That's fun. So you need to build a new rink, put that all downtown, get the land deal, make sure that's done because Melnick couldn't get that done in this whole time. So you got to get all that BS done. And you're... A team that struggles to sell tickets. Let's be honest. 
I, I, I like Ottawa as a city. This isn't Salt Lake. I've been to Ottawa. I think it's a better city than Toronto, quite frankly. Not better than Montreal, but it's, I think I think it's better than Toronto as a city. I enjoyed my. I've been there once. Really enjoyed it. Didn't get to see Trudeau, so I was my best part of the trip. But you have to be close to him, which would be a bit, you know, ugh. But you know, maybe he's out of office soon. This, that, the other. But it's it. You don't get great attendance. You haven't made the playoffs in six years. You need to build a new rink. If you could go to the Toyota Center, because I assume that's what the NFL is, the NHL is going to want to pitch. All you have to do is pay, pay a relocation fee and pay rent. Seems like a lot less than a multi, buy the Senators for over a billion bucks and then build a new arena for over a billion dollars again. Two billion relocation fee, which will be. I don't know, 600, 700 million rent every month. I think you'll save. I'm no math major, but I think you'll save. I'll ask my dad about that. He's more of a numbers guy. But I think you'll save in that, in that ideal world. And I think any city likes to brag that they got two teams in one arena. We house the Houston Rockets and the Houston Cougars. It's not going to be the name, but that's just fodder. We host these two teams. We're just like L.A. We're just like Toronto. We got a big market here. So we'll see. But I think there's more to this store than just three, three guys that are in such a battle to get the team. Because if, it was, if it was just more than that, you just... Put it on a, put it online and put it on a, uh, eBay and see who you know have an auction bid for it. Who wants to be the new owner? <laughs> you do your due diligence. If the guy doesn't have any snakes in his in his closet, whatever that ghost and whatever that stupid saying is, I like snakes in the closet. Sounds more scary. Skeletons in his closet. That's what it is. Skeletons. I guess that makes sense. It's where the you could also say it's where the bodies are buried, but any skeletons in there. I like snakes in the closet. That's my new saying. Trademark. If you find out if he's got any snakes in the closet, if he doesn't, then he's the new owner of your team. And you might find out later he's got snakes in the closet. Danny Boy, Danny Snyder in Washington, he owns the team for 25 years. Eventually he sells. Or Donald Sterling, because what really is due diligence, folks? Does due diligence tell you when somebody's a racist or when somebody's sexist or when somebody is inappropriate in the workplace? Does that, does it really, when you're looking into a person, do you find out that information if there's a bunch of NDAs and things like that? So I'm not saying any of these owners are bad people, but you don't really know. Do you really know what somebody's like when you hire them the first day you met them? No. Because nobody's nicer than when you first meet somebody because you want to get the job so you can get some payment. Believe me, I know. I'm unemployed. So, there's that. Ottawa Center site, we'll cover it over the next couple weeks, but I think there's I think there's some stuff going on behind the scenes. But we'll let you know what happens. Let's pivot to the NBA. Before we get to the game last night, 
coaching news in the NBA, Frank Vogel is a new head coach of the Phoenix Suns. He signed a long-term deal, paying him six, seven million bucks a year, which is seven million dollars less than the former Phoenix Suns head coach Monty Williams that he got in Detroit. Good for Monty. But Frank Vogel won a title in 2020 with the Los Angeles Lakers in the bubble. He's made numerous conference finals with the Indiana Pacers, and he's regarded as one of the best defensive-minded head coaches in the NBA. I like the hire. I think Vogel's a smart guy. I think he's had really good runs with teams that weren't that talented in Indiana, and he never got to an NBA championship in Indiana, but he had to go against LeBron and the Heat seemingly every year with Roy Hibbert and Paul George when he was just a baby. And David West was on those teams. And he had good teams in Indiana. But again, you run into these teams. You play the Chicago Bulls and Derrick Rose at the height of his powers. And you couldn't get by them. But he goes to L.A., has success with LeBron for a bit. And he, what happened to him is what happens to every coach of LeBron. LeBron fired him. You, you, win, you win a title. The next year, you're, you're gone. You're fired as head coach. LeBron can do what he wants, but that's what normally how he handles his business. Frank Vogel did not coach this season. The Phoenix Suns and Matt Ishbia are in win-now mode. New owner, six months into the gig. Trade for Kevin Durant, you have Devin Booker. Kevin Durant's 34. Devin Booker has been to an NBA Finals, but he's lost in the second round the last two years. You got a team that doesn't have a whole lot of depth. A team that trade away all its depth to get Kevin Durant. It's all in Brooklyn. So I don't know if the Phoenix Suns is an awesome job. You have two superstar players. That's the truth. But also you look around and go, what else do I have here? What what else? I have Torrey Craig. And I have guys that I like but aren't great on this team. You have bench players, a lot of them. So what I think the Phoenix Suns, and this is more on James Jones, who's the GM. He needs to find players that fit Frank Vogel, that will be tough defensively, that can shoot. Because you have Kevin Durant, you have Devin Booker, that is going to be the nucleus of your team going forward. Can you find guys that will play 3 and D that can make three-point shots and that can space the floor? Because this team will win because their two best players are awesome. But also I think they need more guys to help them. Because Kevin Durant's 34. He's not a spring chicken. He's got a lot of wear and tear on that body. He's torn his Achilles. He's had injuries. And Devin Booker's fantastic, but you need other players to help you. And the way their team's set up currently, Kevin Durant and Devin Booker are going to play so many minutes in the regular season, they're going to be worn out come playoff time. Worn out. They need some size. They need some defense. Help with rebounding. And they need to figure out what to do with DeAndre Ayton. To me, it's quite simple. You trade him. 
He's not fitting in in Phoenix. He hated Monty Williams. Monty Williams is out, but again, he's an expensive center that doesn't bring you a whole lot. He's a guy that I think has so much more potential, but's not willing to put in the work to get there. So he's a frustrating asset to have. But I do think teams would look into him. If Kyrie re-ups in Dallas, would they take him there? Have Luka with DeAndre Ayton and Kyrie Irving? Might be a fit. Now, what do you want from the Dallas roster? That's the big question. <laughs> but I think you also kind of want that Ayton contract off the books. That might be one you have to kind of accept. You'd have to take some money back from Dallas. But I think you, you I think I don't expect DeAndre Ayton to be on their team next year. Because he's been there a long time. He was a first overall pick, but he's been a disappointing first overall pick. He's been a guy that's underachieved, that's been frustrating. He's beefed with every coach seemingly he's had. I think he needs a fresh start. I think the Phoenix Suns want a fresh start without him as well. But I like Frank Vogel. I think he's a smart hire, and you, you bring him on, bring him on to a team that has expectations to win right away. The last team in the NBA without a head coach are the Toronto Raptors. The Toronto Raptors have not played a game since April 11th. That was a long time ago. They lost the Chicago Bulls in a playing game. And they've been idle ever since. Phoenix played in May. The uh, Philadelphia 76ers played in May. Milwaukee played in late April. All these teams that have made head coaching hires played long after the Toronto Raptors. And yet here they are still looking for a guy. Adrian Griffin, their assistant, is the new head coach of the Milwaukee Bucks. Nick Nurse, who they fired, is the new head coach of the Philadelphia 76ers. So their staff is disappearing. Candidates are getting, you know, kind of chosen. I thought Frank Vogel could be a guy that ended up in Toronto. He goes to Phoenix. Nick Nurse, they fired. He ends up in Philly. Monty Williams is in Detroit. Uh, Paul uh, Stephen Silas, who was the former Houston Rockets head coach, just got announced. He's going to Detroit to be Monty Williams' lead assistant. Ime Udoka goes to Houston. Who are the Raptors going to hire? And why is it taking so damn long for them to hire them? There's no rumors. There's no innuendo. There's nothing on who the Raptors are going to hire as the next head coach. Clearly, they didn't think Adrian Griffin was the right guy. I I don't understand. I don't know. I don't see an easy hire. I don't see an easy hire. And if it is Steve Nash, why didn't you hire him a long time ago? But I expect that to come this week. I expect that to come between now and Wednesday. And the reason I say that is because it's off days between the NBA Finals. So you don't want to interrupt games with head coaching chatter and with, with big news. So you don't do it on the game day. We could do it today or tomorrow. 
Thursday, potentially. But the NBA drafts before the NHL draft. And you need to make decisions on this stuff. Godspeed to the Raptors. Maybe nobody wants the job. I wouldn't want it either. Game two in the NBA Finals was last night in Denver, Colorado. And the Miami Heat even the series at one game apiece. Miami led the game 10-0 to begin. Midway through the second quarter, Denver had a 15-point lead, and the Miami Heat ended up winning the game 111-108, covering the nine-point spread. And winning, all right. What happened last night compared to game one? One thing I thought Miami and Eric Spolstra, who was a great coach, made a very smart adjustment. He inserted Kevin Love into the starting lineup, replacing him with Caleb Martin. Kevin Love had to be inserted into the starting lineup because they needed the size. They needed the spacing and they needed the help rebounding the basketball. Denver is so big and they were torching Caleb Martin. They were attacking the guards and it was too easy for Denver to play. It just was. And Caleb Martin has been ineffective in the series. He has zero points through two games after being arguably the best player in the conference finals. It's a staggering pivot from him. But I love that Spolstra put Kevin Love in that position. You make your starting lineup bigger. And although they were out-rebounded last night, they had eight offensive rebounds to Denver's nine. They were in it. Very much in it. And what Kevin Love does is he creates more rebounding, more size, but he also brings another three-point threat. With him in the starting lineup, you have Kevin Love, you have Gabe Vincent, you have Max Struess, who will shoot threes and not be afraid to do it. You have to be aware of them all the time. It spaces the floor, and it keeps the Denver big man out on the perimeter, not in the paint. So if you do want to have an opportunity in the paint, you can have one. But to me, the biggest reason why Denver lost last night is because Nikola Jokic was really the only player creating and the only guy scoring for Denver in the second half. Jamal Murray had an off game. He didn't shoot the ball well. He turned the ball over. I just don't think he was efficient. Nikola Jokic shot 16 for 28 from the field, and he had 41 points and 11 rebounds. He only had four assists. That's a low number for him. To put that in perspective, Bam Adebayo had four assists for the Heat. But Jokic, seven, or, seven for eight from the, from the free throw line, two for five from three. But Jamal Murray was seven for 15. Michael Porter Jr. was two for eight. Couldn't hit the backside of our door. Caldwell Pope, one for four. The bench was, was really good. Jeff, Christian Braun, three for three. Jeff Green, one for one, field goal. Bruce Brown, four for nine. Not bad. 
But the, the other starters in the starting lineup brought nothing to the table. So he ended up with 41. He had to do all of it. But his teammates didn't, didn't help. His teammates, he, they couldn't use the high pick and roll because Jamal Murray couldn't knock down a shot. And the cutting to the basket was limited because nobody was making anything. And Miami inserted Kevin Love, so it was harder to get there. Another body that you have to get through. And if Miami wasn't playing Cody Zeller, you could argue the game wouldn't be that close because he had to have the Zeller minutes in there, and he's Jokic just completely tears him apart. Max Struess in the first quarter was four for seven from three-point range, 12 points. He also had a steal, and he took a charge. So you could argue he had, he had two forced turnovers. He was all over it. Gabe Vincent, to me, was the star of the game for the Miami Heat. He started with it early, getting to pulling up with the mid-range jumper, then finding Max Struess twice in the first four minutes, and he made his own three-pointer to get a 10-point lead. He, he was consistently great last night. He was better than Jimmy Butler, in my opinion. He was better than Struess. He was the straw that stirred the drink. He's the guy that created opportunities. He got opportunities for Bam. Jimmy Butler ended up with, with 21 and nine assists. He had a good game, really good game. But Gabe Vincent had 23, three assists, but he was just so efficient. Four for six from three-point range. He made dagger shot after dagger shot. He'd go to the free throw line. He knocked them down. He was great. Duncan Robinson was good. He had 10 points in 17 minutes. As I mentioned, stop playing Cody Zeller. I don't get it. He, he, he played eight minutes last night. Eight minutes too many. But the series is certainly more interesting because it's the same thing. In game one, you say, well, Max Struess won't shoot that poorly again. He was four for seven to start. He ended up the game four for ten. Gabe Vincent won't be that bad. Caleb Martin won't be that bad again. Well, he was, but you had other guys step up in his place. Kevin Love addition. I don't think Jamal Murray will be play that poorly in game three. I expect members of the Denver Nuggets knock down a shot when Jokic gives you a clean look. But if Jokic is going to put up 40, which he did last night, 41, it won't matter because you need somebody else to be good. You need your teammates to be efficient. One, one play, it's always the NBA. Well, you need a superstar to win. Yeah, but it's also you need your team to be reliable. You need your team to be there with you. Aaron Gordon was fine. He was in the dunker position, and he did his stuff last night. I didn't really notice him, to be quite honest. I'm going to look. Seven rebounds, it's not enough. He's, he's got to rebound the ball better. He's got to be in a position. Michael Porter Jr. was horrible. That is what you expect from him. He only played 26 minutes last night. He had five points, and he shot two for eight from the field, one for six from three. He'll have a great game, then he'll play terrible. That's his career. He plays good defense, and he rebounds. He had six rebounds in 26 minutes. That's actually pretty good. So he's still doing that. 
but you need some of these guys to step up for Denver to have a game. Because Jokic, 41, triple-double in game, in game one, 40-point uh, game in game two. You only win one of the two. Sounds crazy. But you need to have your other teammates aware and you need to have your other teammates active and reliable enough to be there for you. They weren't. So game three is Wednesday night in South Beach. It'll be an interesting week in Miami because Wednesday night you have Heat Nuggets game three. Thursday night you have Heat, sorry, you have Panthers Knights game three. Friday, Heat Nuggets game four. Saturday night, Panthers Golden Knights game four. So four nights in a row in the Miami area you'll be having finals action. Does it get any better than that? I would argue no. You know those folks in Miami would be fired up too because their heat are tied 1-1. This team that had no chance all season long, the zombie heat are still very much alive. They're like the Walking Dead franchise. It never ends. So we'll see where this series takes us and what Denver will do to adjust down in South Beach. French Open. Have you been watching it? I watched a lot over the weekend. Very entertaining stuff. I mean, on the men's draw, Daniil Medvedev, two seed. Yannick Sinner, eight seed. Taylor Fritz, nine seed. All gone. All gone. Bianca Andreescu was crushed on Saturday afternoon by Tezarenko, who's playing Iga Schweintek currently. And the match is over. Schweintek's through to the to the quarterfinal, uh, Tezarenko had to withdraw. So there you go. Schweitek is back to her third straight French Open quarterfinal. But, but it's it's been interesting because she bows out. You have some interesting matches. You have some upsets. Sa- Arnia Sabalenka, who I, I would argue has been the most consistent and even on in the men's draw, it might be the best tennis player in the world in 2023. She made she won Australia. She made the final at Indian Wells. She made the quarterfinal in Madrid. She's had a run. She's through to another Grand Slam quarterfinal. First time in her career she's in a back-to-back Grand Slam quarters. And she will be getting Alina Svetolina tomorrow. Now, this matchup is interesting because Svitolina is from Ukraine. She hasn't played in a while, had some surgeries, but she's having a resurgence, and the crowd is very much behind her. Sabalenka is from Belarus, and she's been getting peppered from the media with questions about the war in Ukraine, which I'm just going to say, I think that's BS. I think that's horseshit. I think that's bad journalism. Why does she have to comment on it? She's a citizen. She lives in Florida. Because she's playing tennis. She's in Belarus. Asking athletes their opinion. I, I just she's trying to win another Grand Slam. I to me that, that's garbage. But that's neither here nor there. But that matchup's interesting because both women are playing very good tennis currently. And Sabalenka is, you know, having the year of her life. But the more another interesting angle is Alina Rebekina, who Sabalenka beat in the Australian Open quarter, had to withdraw before her round of 16 match with a illness 
So she was having an easy, easy work so far. She had to withdraw. She's no longer playing. So that it very much opens up for Sabalenka. She's the heavy favorite to get to the uh, semifinal, ultimately the final. Because in her draw, she's got Speedalina. If she beats Spitalina, who's not seated, she will meet another unseated woman, either Carolina McCook, the champion, in the semifinal. So she has no ranked opponents to get to a major final, so she's the heavy favorite to get there again. Men's draw today, so yesterday, Novak Djokovic won easy. Carlos Alcaraz, easy win. Karen Hatchinoff through to a quarterfinal here, and Svano Sissipas cruised to a win. So you got Djokovic and Hatchinoff tomorrow morning. Alcaraz, Sissipas also tomorrow. The winners will face each other in the semifinal. Everybody's expecting the Alcaraz-Djokovic showdown. Sissipas is playing really well. He's been to a Grand Slam final here, losing to Rafael Nadal. That's the match of the day tomorrow, 100%, is seeing these two guys get on the court and battle it out. The number one seed and number five seed in the world. I expect Djokovic to beat Hatchinoff. Maybe he gets a set off of him, but Djokovic looks very strong. So I, I don't know what will happen there. We still have a number of matches this afternoon, two on the men's side. Sasha Zverev will meet up with Grigor Dimitrov, who's playing some really good tennis. And uh, Yoshi Nagiyosha, who is in his first Grand Slam quarterfinal, he will meet another guy in his first career Grand Slam quarterfinal in Thomas Martin Echeverry, who's from Greece. So he'll he'll play this afternoon. Holger Rune, Casper Rudd, Casper Rudd, who was in the Grand Slam final last year. He's through. He'll play Holger Rune Wednesday morning. So that's that's what's happening on the men's side. But the French Open's been fun. We get into the last three rounds. This is when the rubber meets the road for the best players in the world. Memorial Cup final. Seattle versus Quebec, and it was not much of a hockey game. James Maltesta. Great regular season. QMJHL playoff MVP. And then named Memorial Cup MVP last night with five goals. Fifth round selection of the Columbus Blue Jackets. They, Quebec, I thought Seattle would win the tournament because they have so many guys drafted. They have got, they have like an AHL squad. But Quebec, to me, just wanted it more. And I give the credit to guys like Maltesta, Nathan Goche, who played his role well, and the back end. Rousseau between the pipes was lock solid. The, the defense with Kamarov, Evan Noss, who's from Moncton, New Brunswick. Uh, Robida, these guys for Quebec were very, very good. They showed up. They didn't allow a great score, a lot of scoring opportunities. And last night's game was their easiest game of the tournament. And Patrick Wall, in his first his first year in the QMJHL coaching the Quebec Rampart was in 2006. In Moncton, he won the Mem Cup. 2023, his last year coaching the Quebec Rampart, his last year in the in the QMJHL, he wins the Memorial Cup. 
So his opening act and his curtain call both end up with Memorial Cup champions on his on his resume. And my first thought after the game was, well, where does he go from here? Winning the Memorial Cup does not hurt your stock. Babcock is going to Columbus. That job is taken. I highly doubt if the Maple Leafs decide to move on from Sheldon Keith, Patrick Waugh would be the replacement, but you never know. The Anaheim job, you have, uh, what else is out there? The, the Calgary Flames job, wouldn't rule that out. Does he get a look at any of these opportunities? The New York Rangers, I think the New York Rangers would hire Patrick Waugh. I think the New York Rangers would be interested Peter Laviolette was said to be in the mix. They haven't named him yet. They haven't said he's the new head coach. So that tells me that I think they want to at least interview Patrick Wall. They want to talk to him. He's a champion. He's coming off winning. And they he would be going into a scenario that I think he envy, he wants. He wants to start with a team that wants to win. We saw what he how he approached the Colorado job when they wanted to tank. He got out. He said, I quit. I don't want to rebuild. I don't want any part of this. Get me out of here. The Rangers have one, they have one way they want to go, four. They want to win. And Patrick Waugh hasn't played, did not play for the New York Rangers, but I don't think that matters. If he's a coach, if he can help you win, then you then you take a look at him. I don't even go on to say this. Calgary still looking at guys. Gerard Gallant. When that gets announced, we'll, we'll talk about it here on the show. I believe that Peter Laviolette makes a lot of sense. He's a Stanley Cup champion. He's done it all. Yada, yada, yada. I think the Rangers are going to hire Patrick Roy. I didn't think it before. But sometimes it's just the aura of winning. He said, I'm not going back to coach in the QMJHL. Simon Gagne is going to be the next head coach of the Quebec Ramparts. Patrick Waugh just has that winning style about him. Hear him talk to the media. He's still got that way. He's still stern. I think he can still control a locker room. And I think he likes the trading and, and maneuvering more than he likes being a head coach. But hey, if the money's there, I think you take it. And it's way different from being a GM in the queue than it is to be a GM in the NHL. He's never done the GM in the NHL. He's never been an AGM or worked to get that. Looking at some of the guys that have gotten jobs, I think Patrick Waugh could get an NHL coaching job for sure. Now I'm going to put my snake in the ground. I have Patrick Waugh being the next head coach at the of the New York Rangers. I just, I feel it. For some reason, I just believe it's going to happen. Laviolette's been sitting there. You could have hired him. You could have hired him for a long time now, and you didn't. Why? Patrick Waugh's the Memorial Cup. You can't talk to him. You can't deal with him. You can't negotiate a contract. What do you want to do with the team? None of those conversations can be had because he's focused on other things. Well, now he's not. Now he's free. Now he can talk to you about anything you want. Where is this team going in the future? What do you want to do with this player? How would you do with our Timmy Panarin other than burying him underneath, you know, in the ground? 
What players do you want on, on the team next year? All these things you can talk about. And James Dolan, we got to remember, he's the owner of the New York Rangers. Also the owner of the Knicks. The Knicks had a better year than the Rangers this year. Woof. He likes splash hires. Laviolette is a splash, you can say. He's a former Stanley Cup winner in Carolina, but that was a long time ago, nearly 20 years ago. What if we bring in Patrick Waugh? So many Stanley Cups as a player, Memorial Cup champion just a week, couple days ago. He knows these young players that we're bringing in. He can deal with them. Yada, yada, yada. We'll see, but I think Patrick Water, the Rangers, is going to gain steam, and I think it very well could happen. Patrick Water, two Memorial Cups in his years. But the real impressive thing here, four straight QMJHL Memorial Cup winners. Four straight seasons the Q has lifted the trophy. We might as well just be a Q trophy now. The WHL had two teams. You have a 50% chance of winning the tournament, and they did not win. The WHL has not won a Memorial Cup since 2014, the Edmonton Oil Kings. To put that into perspective, Curtis Lazar was the captain of that team. Curtis Lazar was the captain of the Edmonton Oil Kings the last time a WHL team won it. 2014. We're coming on 10 years of the WHL team winning it. Woof. But good for Quebec. Good for the Q. I will say I did think Brad Lambert looked good in the tournament. I thought in the World Juniors, I watched him, he's playing for Finland. He had his, I didn't think he played well. I didn't think he showed a whole lot of confidence. I, I thought he looked poised with the puck, more confident with the puck, not afraid to make a mistake. And playing with guys like Dylan Gunther certainly didn't didn't hurt. But for Seattle, with, with Lambert and Gunther, Colton Dock, uh, Stojevic, Thomas Milic, all these players to not win the Memorial Cup, that hurts. That hurts because your only expectation was to win. But we'll see. Congratulations to Quebec. The golf tournament down at the Memorial this past weekend in Dublin, Ohio. Jack Nicholas's tournament. Watching a lot of it Saturday in the crappy weather here in the Maritimes. It was so fascinating because David Lipsky, sorry, Hideki Matsuyama had a, had a four shot lead at minus nine after he started the round going birdie, birdie. Then on eight and nine goes bogey, bogey, and he ends the day minus three. Not even in the, I think he was tied for 16th. So he had a huge lead at one point. It completely went away from him. Then at one point, David Lipsky on Saturday, he had a two-shot lead on Rory McIlroy. He bogeys 17 and 18 to end the day with a three-way tie with Rory and Siwoo Kim at 600. So we go into Sunday, three-way tie. 
And this, the greens at the Memorial were playing incredibly tough. You put it on the green, looks like a good shot. It's rolling all the way down, and it was a frustrating day for a lot of guys, including Rory McIlroy, who has been struggling lately, and it continued. It, it absolutely continued because it just – he was tired for the lead to start the day. He finished tied for seventh at minus three. He shot three over yesterday. Finished behind Putnam, behind Jordan Spieth. Sibu Kim shot one over. Scotty Scheffler had a minus five day to creep into contention at one point. But I was watching the tournament. I said on the seventh hole, Denny McCarthy is going to win the Memorial. Start his day, he had two incredible par saves with his putting. He then had birdies, two birdies on the first seven holes. And I said, he's going to win the tournament. Now, along the day, you had Scheffler, who was off the course about three hours before McCarthy finished because he was shot five under for the day. But McCarthy was chugging along. He did a bogey there, but then he would birdie. And he entered the last hole knowing all he had to do was par the hole to win the Memorial, to win his first career first career PGA, PGA Tour tournament and winning $3.6 million. Put one in the fairway, good shot. His approach up and down, it rolled, and before you know it, he bogeys the 17th. So Victor Hovland, who was sitting, waiting for him, we go into a playoff, and the choking continued. Denny McCarthy, his, his driver, right into the long thickets. A good punch out. Puts it on the green, has a long, has a long uh, putt for par. It lips out, and Victor Hovland makes a par putt to win the tournament. Another one added to his mix. Hovland is he's always been in the top five at both majors this year. He now has the Memorial, the biggest win of his career on his. He's won. The, he's been on the DP World Tour. He's won at, at the European Tour. He's truly one of the best players in the game. And he's one of my favorites. I just, he's got weird style that he doesn't care if people don't like it. And he just, nobody shot the, played the course well because it was crippling tough. It played like a major and he, he just found a way to win it. Beating out guys like McElroy, beating out guys like Scotty Scheffler, John Rahm. And it was an impressive scene. I feel bad for Denny McCarthy because I thought from about the sixth hole he was going to win the tournament. It just felt that way to me. Guys were losing it. Guys were losing confidence, not having good approach shots onto the greens, and he just figured out the figured out the course. And he really did. He really did because he shot. I think he shot two hundred. He shot two hundred yesterday, which is a good, which is a good round at that golf course. But in the biggest moments, he let it slip a little bit. And before you knew it, Victor Hovland made him pay for the mistake. To me, you look at the players and the Memorial as the two biggest tournaments outside of majors that somebody can win. The players is in March. It's worth a lot of money. And then you have the Memorial here because it's Jack Nicholas's tournament. And it's, it's just got an aura to it. It's elevated. Everybody shows up to play this weekend. And for Hovland to win this one, you know, it puts him into that upper echelon of players. It puts him into the mix 
of guys that just, you know, just on the outside that haven't won a major. Max Homa, Tony Finau. Um, I could think through the list as, as I think of guys. Uh, Sam Burns, I, I would throw in that mix. Uh, Xander Shoffley. When you can win an event like this, it, it adds to your lore. It adds to who you are as a player. And it's it's a big deal for for uh, Victor Hovland to, to win this event. This coming weekend, we have the RBC Canadian Open in Oakdale in Toronto. I'm pulling up the field here because I haven't seen this yet, honestly. Starts on Thursday. I know the TSN field, uh, TSN podcasts and shows are all going to the event. This is a little press release. Two-time defending champion Rory McIlroy along with international stars Matthew Fitzpatrick, Sam Burns, Cam Young, Terrell Hatton, Tommy Fleetwood, Shane Lowry, Sahit Tagala, and Justin Rose will be joined by past major champions, in-year winners, and Canadian stars like Corey Connors, Mackenzie Hughes, Adam Svensson, Nick Taylor, Adam Hadwin, and Taylor Pendrith at Oakdale Golf and Country Club. That's a you know, that's a pretty good list there. The fact that you have last year's U.S. Open champion, Matthew Fitzpatrick, Terrell Hatton, great golfer, great personality, Tommy Flutewood, Shane Lowry, Justin Rose, Sahit Tagala. It's it's fun. I I, uh, I I think that's as good a field as you can hope for. For, for this event. You also have uh, Michael Block, who played at the PGA Championship, who was the star there. He's playing here. So for for this event, to have a lot of these guys coming up is is great. It, it's fantastic. I'm going to see if there's any more names here that pop up. Obviously, a lot of Canadians. Not some big names that they're promoting anyway, but that's that's a solid field. I think it's a better field than it was last year, to be honest. Major champions, guys like that, good personalities. Should be a fun week for for TSN and everybody out there uh, following the the RBC Canadian Open. We'll we'll touch on it throughout the week, of course. The one one event of the year that's up here in in Canada. Always fun, always fun to talk about, always uh, fun things to look into there. So we'll see, we'll see what happens. And we got RBC Canadian Open starting Thursday this weekend. And then next weekend, we have the U.S. Open at the L.A. Country Club. So that's on tap the next two weeks, which is uh, a fun time in the, in the uh, PGA Tour season. This weekend, coming up, UFC 290. Amanda Nunez is headlining against Arena Aldana. It's not a great card, to be honest. And I think it's getting worse. Fights are getting pulled off of it. I'm still going to order the card because I have to. But, I mean, it's it's not a great – we'll touch on that more during the week and just, you know, kind of the inner, inner workings of this. But it's not one of the better cards of the year, that's for sure. We had an event this weekend down at the Apex. Uh the biggest thing for me was 45-year-old Andre Arlovsky got knocked out by Dontel Mays. Might be his last fight in the UFC. It's sad to say he's a former world champion. 
He's got uh, the second most fights in UFC history. But again, to be fighting at that age is pretty crazy. He's lost two in a row. I could see the UFC parting ways with him. And then the other hand, you have Jim Miller, who's 40, who's got the most UFC wins of anybody ever. 23-second knockout of Jesse Butler. Just vicious, vicious knockout. So two older guys that were on the card doing work. Jim Miller continues to rise up the, the record books. But at his age, to be doing what he's doing, incredible stuff from Jim. There was controversy in the in the main event, Kai Kara France, Amir Albazi. I thought it was a really close fight. After the fight on on Twitter, everybody's blowing up about it that Kara France was robbed. I don't think it was a robbery. I, I don't view it that way. To me, the only round that is in discussion, to me, I have I had Albazi winning the second round. Albezi winning the third, and I had Cara France winning the fourth comfortably, the most comfortable round win of any of them, and also Cara France winning the fifth. The first one was in question, and I think that, that could have went either way. So I don't view it as a robbery. What I think the biggest problem in the sport right now is judging, and not the outcome per se, but how they judge it round per round. They had a judge who ruled the fourth round to Amir, and it was nowhere close to being his round. It was not, not even close. It was the easiest round to score in the entire fight. I'm fine with Albazi winning, but I don't agree. If he's winning because you score him in the fourth round, that's just stupidity. That means you can't be judging UFC fights anymore because he, he clearly got dominated in that round. Dominated in that round. He had no, he had no movement, no attacks in that fourth round to, to win it. So the sport is in a good place because it's more popular than ever. And you have some really interesting fighters. You have good personalities that are emerging, you know, this, that, and the other. But what's not good is seeing, having the scorecards come out after and seeing how they scored round per round certain fights. And you go, what the hell happened here? How did this outcome happen? This doesn't make any sense. What does this mean? And we need clarity on... And I think these judges should meet the media in chat and say, How do, tell us why he won the fourth round. Tell us why he won the fourth round and explain it to me, what he did better than his opponent. After events like these, they should be looked into. It's just like the NBA, just like the NHL. Officials are judged. And if you're no good, then guess what? You're not going to be in a bigger event. You won't be on a pay-per-view. You won't be officiating for the UFC. Your job performance, like in any job, it should be evaluated. And if you're no good at your job, then guess what? You're you're out. So that's my problem with the Cara France Albazi main event. Not that Albazi won, that he was yet judges ruling that Kai lost the fourth round. Stupidity. We got UFC 290 this weekend from Vancouver, British Columbia. That's gonna be it for today. Game two this evening. Looking forward to it. As I said earlier in the show, I think Florida evens up the series tonight. We'll get into some baseball tomorrow. Didn't get that throughout the weekend, but there's a lot going on this weekend. We'll react more to the French Open results from today looking ahead. And uh, if anything comes out from coaching or or anything like that in in the world of sports, we'll react to that uh, as well. 
So thank you for the time today. Thank you for the support as always. Take care. Stay warm. This is To The Point.